0: the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounding him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn. And took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him. and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, The one who showed mercy upon him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Thus far the reading of God's Word, this is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your Word in the way that it shows us your Son, Jesus, and how you have revealed your mercy toward us in it. We pray, Father, that as we look at it today and consider this story in front of us, that you would reveal your Son to us in a deeper way. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In the middle of the 4th century, the plague sweeping through the Roman Empire came to the city of Caesarea. Already weakened by war and famine, the population of the city dwindled as its inhabitants began to succumb to the disease or flee for the relative safety of the countryside. However, during the plague, there was at least one group that was staying behind in the city, the Christians. The historian of the early church and bishop of Caesarea, Eusebius, records in his church history that during the plague, quote, some of the Christians tended to the dying and their burial, others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. A few decades later. After Eusebius writes, the Emperor Julian, who was dubbed Julian the Apostate because of his renunciation of his Christian upbringing and his attempt to revive the ancient pagan practices of Rome, he recognized that it's the Christian's compassion that was demonstrated consistently and concretely in very difficult circumstances, like the plague, that was a major factor in the growth of the faith throughout the Roman Empire. Julian wrote to a pagan priest and said this, "...the Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our own people lack aid from us." End quote. He goes on later, if you read the rest of the letter, to propose that the pagan priests imitate the Christians' compassion and and their holiness of life in order to bring a revival of pagan practice and, and, draw, and draw their worshipers into greater piety towards the gods. As an, as an aside, all of Julian's um, suggestions that he gives the priest don't actually work. The pagan revival uh, doesn't happen, and, and Christianity continues to grow and overtake in Rome. And one of the major reasons for that is that the pagan practices that Julian um, ask the priest to revive and to exhort other people to don't contain within them the, the necessary uh, spiritual resources to motivate compassion like the Christians had. From the earliest days, even down to the present, followers of Christ have been known uniquely as a compassionate people, caring for the sick, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, and giving to the poor. And it's worth us asking, what motivated those Roman Christians to have compassion for their neighbors, to have compassion even on their enemies? Why were they so merciful to strangers and outsiders? Because if we're honest, most of our lives are not always characterized by the kind of mercy that we wish they would have. They're not characterized by the kind of compassion that has been shown through Christ's people throughout church history. For us, it's often hit or miss. Of course, the main difference between the pagan priests and the Christians in Caesarea was Christ. After they had received God's free mercy and compassion in Jesus, that mercy flowed freely to others, even spontaneously to their enemies in acts of love toward God and mercy on others. And love of God and others is at the very center of our text today. In it, Jesus talks with a religious scholar, a lawyer, and he tells what is easily one of his best-known parables, his best-known lessons, The often called the parable or the story of the Good Samaritan. And in it, he and this lawyer will reason about love of God and others and the heart of the law. And so as we take our passage today, we're going to take it in three parts. The first one is verses 25 through 29. And we're going to look at the essence of God's law and see that it is love for God and others. And we're also going to see that we don't meet this standard. And the second portion is going to be verses 30 through 37. And we're going to see that Jesus himself is the one who loves God and others perfectly on our behalf. And then at the very end, last half of 37, we'll see that we are called to an imitative gratitude. We are called to imitate Jesus as he walks in the way of love. So let's look first at verses 25 through 28 and the essence of God's law. Now in chapter 9 of Luke, there's a, a turning point in Luke where it says that Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And the the whole rest of the narrative of the book are stories of Jesus going to Jerusalem, going to the cross, and different people that he encounters. And this is one of them. In verse 25, it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus must have been sitting, as was customary for teachers and rabbis of the day, and a certain man from the crowd, a lawyer, it says, stands up to test him and asks him a question. Luke tells us that this man was a lawyer, not a lawyer in the sense that we normally think of today, someone who tries civil cases in front of a court. This is someone, rather, who is an expert in the Torah, in the Mosaic law. And he asked Jesus, what should I do To inherit eternal life, and that question is a good one, right? Jesus, in fact, has asked this question many times throughout the Gospels. Every person, every eternal soul, must reason and think about eternal things. He wants to know how he may inherit an eternal life from God. But the man, in addition to his good question, has two problems. One is that he stood up to test Jesus, it says. That is, he didn't ask his question sincerely. The other is that he has made a fundamental mistake about the nature of the law and inheriting eternal life by asking what he must do, what works can he accomplish, how may he merit eternal life before God. Just like the lawyer, many people today come to Jesus, asking questions, not to receive information, not sincerely to get answers, but to test him and to try him, to evaluate, to judge him, to stand as the one who will evaluate Jesus and his answers. But one of the things that I love about Jesus that's in this passage and throughout the Gospels is that Jesus is not offended by that. Jesus is totally able to take the lawyer's suspicions and hostility and turn it into a conversation that is fruitful and about eternal things. Jesus never so much engages a question as he does the questioner. I don't know if you've noticed that throughout the Bible. Jesus is able to take whatever question people put to him and deal with it, and more importantly, deal with the heart of the person asking the question. Many people, I said, come to Jesus asking similar questions. Many people come insincerely asking similar questions. And when you do, you will always find that in answering your questions, Jesus is the one testing you. Jesus is the one testing our own hearts. The lawyer asked for a set of rules that he could keep to merit eternal life. And so Jesus tests him and gives him an answer. In verse 26, he says, Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So the lawyer answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. The man was a lawyer. He was an expert in the law. And so Jesus turned him to the Scriptures, turned him to the law, and says, What do the Scriptures say? You're the expert, you tell me. This is basically the same response that Jesus gives the rich young ruler when he asked him the same question. Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. And he gives him some of the Ten Commandments. He is turning him back to the law, just like he did this lawyer. And the lawyer quotes, an excellent summary of the law, Deuteronomy 6, 5, and Leviticus nineteen eighteen. The lawyer has correctly ascertained that the essence of God's law is love of God and other people. Love of God and neighbor from the heart is what God requires. Jesus tells him, if you want to have eternal life with God, all... All you have to do is love God with everything that you have, with every spare thought, with all of your affections, be perfect in your actions, and all the time willing his glory and seeking the good of others as if they were you. What's Jesus doing? He's holding up the law as a mirror to the lawyer. He's holding up the law as a mirror to the lawyer's heart. He's doing what? What has commonly be, he's showing what has commonly been called in Reformed theology, the first use of the law. The law shows us in the first instance where we fall short. Some of you might even be thinking about the hymn that we just sang before the sermon. Some of the verses say, The law of God is good and wise and sets his will before our eyes, shows us the way of righteousness and dooms to death when we transgress. It's light of holiness imparts the knowledge of our sinful hearts that we may see our lost estate and turn from sin ere too late. That's very hard not to sing it. It's hard just to read it. y'all. You know? <laughs> That's the first use of the law. That's what the law is for, is to hold up a mirror to ourselves and to our hearts and to show us that we do not love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. Even as the lawyer quoted the correct verses, he must have felt the sting of Jesus' question in his own answer. Because as he, as he continues his conversation with Jesus, he does what most of us do when God's law stings our hearts and stings our consciences. He attempts to justify himself, as it says in verse 29. In verse 29 it says, but he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus and who is my neighbor the lawyer latched on to that second part of the reply about one's neighbor he wants to know exactly where does this responsibility fall and you can understand it because we, we've all done similar things. When we're confronted with the standards of loving God with absolutely everything that we have and our neighbor as ourselves, whatever commands that God gives that sting our conscience, we want to break them down perhaps into a manageable size. Let, can I just get maybe a quarter of this? If I can start with a quarter of this, then maybe I can get the rest of it and then maybe I can love God with everything that I have can't do it. In fact, his desire to know how to limit his neighbors so as to be able to fulfill the command shows that he doesn't truly love God with everything that he has. Because as the apostle John tells us, that, uh, that people are made in God's image. So he says, how can you love God whom you've not seen if you do not love your brother whom you have seen? There's a, a correspondence between loving your neighbor and loving God. And in tempting to lower the bar on loving his neighbor, the lawyer's actually showing that he doesn't get it and he doesn't have love for God in the deepest recesses of his heart. And that's what prompts Jesus to tell the story that we normally call the parable or the story of the Good Samaritan. He says, beginning in verse 30, Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounding him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked, and passed by on the other side. Now the story that Jesus tells is obviously fictional. It has that fairy tale beginning. Now a certain man was leaving, but his setting was actually uh, very realistic. The road that ran from Jerusalem to Jericho during that time went through very deserted and dangerous territory, and robberies and murders were actually quite common on that road. If you were going to travel from Jerusalem to Jericho, it was advisable that you would go in a group. Well, Jesus's character, Jesus's man, does not go in a group, And sure enough, no sooner does he leave Jerusalem and head off down the road than he is set upon by thieves and beaten and stripped and left for dead. Now the priest and the Levite were religious people, versed in the law, much like our lawyer. And they might have been expected to stop and help a man that was in need. And instead we find not only do they not stop and help, but it says that they observed him, they saw him, and they passed by on the other side of the road. Some commentators have speculated that the priest and the Levite, um, if the man had perhaps been dead, if they didn't know and he was dead and they, and they touched him, they would be ritually unclean, and they couldn't perform their duties at the temple for a time. And so perhaps that's why, um, why do, they don't stop to help. But we're not told. They might have had pressing business in Jericho, or they could have uh, thought that perhaps the man on the side of the road was a plant, and that the robbers were still there and still waiting, and that they would fall prey to them themselves. We're not told, but they, what they do is what we often do when we see others in need. So often when we see others in need, we pit our duty to love our neighbors, ourselves, against other duties that God requires of us it seems as if the priest and the Levite are are completely uncaring but I think that's a very realistic picture of ways that we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves we make excuses that are plausible and that are good and that allow us to pass by others suffering on the other side of the road and it's that point in the story where Jesus introduces his third character. And this is the one that's supposed to offer aid, that's supposed to offer help. All right, this is, uh, this is the third of the three in the folktale. We have things just like this in our folktales as well, like Goldilocks and the three bears. When Goldilocks finds the porridge, the first one's too hot, the second one's too cold, And the third one is just right, okay? This is what Jesus is doing in the story. This is what he's setting up. Look at verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where Jesus was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? The introduction of a Samaritan as the third person, as the helping person, is absolutely devastating to the lawyer and to Jesus's original audience. This is a, a complete curveball. This would be like having porridge that's too hot, too cold, and a block of ice. This it doesn't make any sense. Jesus' audience is expecting a priest, a Levite, and an Israelite, a layman. That would make a logical sequence. Okay? And this would confirm what many in Jesus' audience would be thinking. Jesus has gone around and has been sort of an anti-establishment type. He, is, um, he has gotten in fights with the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers all throughout the book of Luke. And from that turning point in, in Luke 9, 51, onward to the rest of it, there's going to continue to be greater and greater conflict with the religious leaders of his day. And most of Jesus' audience has to be expecting this is an anti a clerical tale. This is about the goodness of the layman, the goodness of the average Israelite. Perhaps he's going to say that priests and Levites and lawyers, like the questioner, lack compassion, but the late Israelite is the one who truly fulfills the law. But that's not what Jesus does. He introduces a Samaritan. The Samaritans were absolutely hated. It's I tried to think of an example, like a modern example of putting someone in the place of Samaritan, but it's difficult to do because they're hated in just every category you can think of. They were hated ethnically. They were thought of as half-breeds. When when the northern kingdom of Israel was taken over by Assyria, they intermarried with the occupying Assyrians. And so the pure-blooded Israelites thought of them as uh, impure Israelites just by uh, ethnically but they're also thought of as heretics, okay? They, they don't worship at the temple. They have, their, they have their own place that they worship. They have their own practices, and they don't hold to the entirety of the scriptures. So they're heretics. Um, ethnically, there's lots of bad blood and, and violence between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jews would not pass through Samaria, Samaria um, if they could help it. And so introducing a Samaritan is, a, is an absolute curveball. Now, if the story had been of a Samaritan who was robbed and beaten and of a compassionate Jew who showed up and helped him, it would be a ex- striking example for Jesus' audience of a Jew fulfilling the law, of doing, of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, even if he is an enemy. That's the way we normally read it, that this story has been uh, just flannel-graphed to death, that that's what it means, is that you... Uh, love people who are not like you and even maybe your enemies. And then if you do that, God will accept you and you will live. And that's not the story that Jesus tells. The story that Jesus tells first and foremost is a story of someone who is met at his deepest point of need and loved unconditionally by his enemy. Someone who is hated and shows up and shows mercy. So, why is the Samaritan the hero of the story? Well, it means the lawyer cannot identify with the Samaritan. As Jesus tells the story, and the, and the lawyer begins to look for who in this parable should I identify with, the hero is taken away. With the hero taken away, the lawyer and all the other members of that original audience are left adrift. They don't know exactly where to find themselves in the parable. Who am I in this parable? And it's a question worth asking. Where do you find yourself in the parable? Are you like the lawyer? Are you hoping as you get to the punchline, that you will find yourself as the hero, that you will keep God's law and merit his favor? Or do you might more often find yourself to be like the priest and the Levite, passing over, passing around the suffering of others? You see, the lawyer's problem and the priest and the Levite's problem always go together. Self-justification and a lack of mercy always go together. Self-justification and a lack of mercy always go together. Because when you're self-justifying, you will either be doing really well by your standards, and you will see everyone else and think, they just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps like I am and do what I'm doing. Or you're going to be doing very poorly and be very focused on fixing it and trying to get rid of that gnawing sense of not measuring up to where you should be. But either way, whether you're doing very well or doing very poorly, the focus in that instance is on yourself. That's why self-justification and a lack of mercy for others go hand in hand. And so if you walk through your life unable to see the need of others, it might be that in your heart, you're working on justifying yourself before God. Instead, Jesus is inviting the lawyer and us to see ourselves in the first instance as the man on the side of the road someone in desperate need of mercy. Is that not the picture of us that the law of God puts before our eyes? Are we not all wounded in our conscience, beaten and overtaken by our lust, stripped of all of our righteousness before God, living half-dead lives without strength to save ourselves, In the slightest way. This is the picture that Jesus holds up for the lawyer for us to see. Compared to God's law, the man on the side of the road is all of us. And who's the hero? Who's the Samaritan? Is the one despised and rejected by men, branded as a heretic by his own people, Hated, and yet the one who comes and shows compassion, binding up the one who needs mercy and taking the price himself for the man's redemption. Jesus is the one, again, moved with compassion for sinners like you and me and came to the cross and paid every expense that was necessary for our healing. He was wounded, as Isaiah tells us, For our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, and by His stripes we are healed. There's just so many wonderful details about the Samaritan. It says that he, when he saw him, that he had compassion. The word means um, like to feel with. It's it's something that is in your guts. That in his very guts, Jesus or the Samaritan feels the problems and the weight. In the need of the person that he sees. The Samaritan, the priest and the Levite could see the man on the side of the road, but only the Samaritan could see himself in the, man, in the man on the side of the road. Jesus feels our need for him, and he comes to us. The law shows us what God is like and how far we are from attaining it, but Jesus is God in the flesh, and he lived and does live that law of love perfectly, showing mercy to sinners like us who need it continually. But Jesus has one final word for the lawyer. Look at verse 37. Second half of 37, he says, Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Friends, I want to tell you that there is an absolute world of difference between do this and live and go and do likewise. One sets up a standard of righteousness to meet, and the other one holds up gratitude through imitation. All right, did you did you see that? At the very beginning, when the lawyer says, what can I do to merit God's favor? What can I do to to attain eternal life? Jesus says, fulfill the law, do it. But having been humbled by the picture, Jesus tells him, Go and do likewise. Like what? Like the neighbor. Like Jesus, the Samaritan, the one who has mercy. It's imitative gratitude. In question two of the Heidelberg Catechism, there are three things that it says a Christian must grasp deep in their bones. One is how great my sin and misery are. Second, How I am set free from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such a deliverance. Thanking God for such a deliverance is where the catechism calls us to live a holy life in obedience to Jesus and in imitation of him. Having been set free from the necessity of earning God's favor by merit, you and I are free to allow his mercy that we've received to flow freely to others as we imitate Jesus, the good Samaritan. The law then is not a terror, but becomes a delight. As the hymn we sang said in another verse, to those who help in Christ have found and would in works of love abound, it shows what deeds are his delight and should be done As good and right. So the law now instructs us how to imitate the life of God in Jesus Christ that we have received freely by his grace. And this helps explain a a straight detail or two, like the innkeeper. I don't know if you noticed, but the innkeeper gets a decent amount of airtime in Jesus' story. He takes him to an inn and stays there with him a day and then gives the innkeeper money and says, I'll come back and repay you. This is yet another way that Jesus kind of upsets the, the folktale structure is usually there's three, right? There would be priest, Levite, and in this case, Samaritan. But then there's this fourth person. There's an innkeeper. And this is why Jesus put the innkeeper in there. Is the innkeeper is someone who continues the Samaritan's ministry with the Samaritan's resources until the Samaritan returns and rewards him, this is the position that if you are in Christ and have received Christ's mercy, this is the position that you can find yourself in. In the parable, you are someone for whom the Lord has the, the Lord has entrusted resources to, and and to whom the Lord has given people to have mercy upon. God's given you f- spiritual resources and physical resources in order that you might continue to bind up those people that God is calling to himself. This is what we are to do as a body, as a church. In fact, many of the church fathers, as they read this story, parable, uh, they, they believed that the inn and the innkeeper was the church. And they, they pressed some of the details too far. They had like down to the little... Nooks and crannies, well, the, the two denarii are the Old and the New Testaments, and there's preaching and these various things. We don't have to press the details that far, but the point is a good one. The God, that Jesus includes us in his ministry of mercy to other people in both a spiritual and a physical way. The point of Jesus' story to the lawyer is, is not uh, that the lawyer can merit his way to eternal life by loving his neighbors as well as he needs to and showing that he loves God with everything. Instead, it's that he and you and I will have compassion on others to the degree that we see our own need for mercy from God in others' needs for mercy. You will have compassion on others to the degree that you see your own need for mercy. In others' need for mercy. And so, as you look down the pew and across the room, there are neighbors. There are people around you this very week that will need mercy. There are people across the street who will need mercy. There are people that you will see on your drive to work who will need mercy. And what Jesus is saying is receive mercy. Free mercy from God like a man who is beaten on the side of the road and can, can do nothing for himself. And then see that need for mercy in other people. So as we close and think about applying this, I know some of you are, are wanting, um, you like the spreadsheets and the exact details. Okay, well tell me exactly what should I do? What does it look like to show mercy? And it's going to be different for everybody. The main application that I want us to take from this is to have our eyes opened to see our need for mercy in other people. When you do that, your response will be free and spontaneous and like Jesus, and you will meet the needs that people actually have in a far better way than if you had a list of this is what to do in any given situation. And so what I want to suggest to you this week is a number of times over the course of this week, pray this prayer. O Lord, open my eyes to see my need of you in other people's needs. O Lord, open my eyes this week to see my need of you in other people's needs. And as we walk with the good Samaritans, we walk with Jesus as he shows mercy upon us and he empowers us by his spirit to see where we might show mercy to others, then we will be like that innkeeper, entrusted with people upon whom to have mercy and the Lord's resources. We begin to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, as a gift that Jesus gives us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have shown us incredible mercy in your son, Jesus. When we were sinful and without strength, Jesus died for us, the ungodly, and has raised us to new life in his resurrection from the dead. O Lord, open our eyes to see our need of mercy in others so that your mercy might flow through us. In Jesus' name, amen.